Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. We are still on the edge of our seats. What is this week's episode, Donna? We are ready to discuss an explosive affair part two. The air date was October 14th, 1981, written by Steve Marshall. Story editors, Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. Executive story consultant, Lisa Levin. Directed by Linda Day. Now, this is the conclusion of a two-part episode In part one, former receptionist Joyce Armour showed up at the station for a visit. She had a proposition for Mr. Carlson. The station also received a bomb threat from a group called Black Monday. The Flim building is evacuated and Andy sends Venus and Johnny out to the transmitter building so they can continue broadcasting. At the transmitter building, because of bad luck with a horse race, Johnny smashes the phone. At the end of part one, Andy realizes the bomb may be at the transmitter site, but he is not able to contact Venus and Johnny to warn them. Welcome back to the second part of the one-hour Explosive Affair episode. In a lot of people's minds, this isn't an explosive affair. Instead, they know it as the phone cops episode. You remember in part one how Johnny destroyed the phone at the transmitter building by smashing it with the toolbox? At about the 16-minute mark of this episode, we're going to hear sirens. Johnny freaks out, thinking the sirens are the phone cops coming to haul him in. He destroyed phone company property. In Johnny's world, that's what happens if you damage a phone. The phone cops come for you, and it's not pretty. The image of the phone cops in this episode resonated with a lot of people. For many fans, the only thing they really remember from this hour-long two-parter is the last six minutes when Johnny is freaking out about the phone cops. We've got news to put your mind at ease. There are no phone cops. At <laughs> least we're pretty sure there aren't any phone cops. If you Google, does AT&T have a secret police force? And I did. <laughs> Nothing comes Nothing. up. <laughs> they don't even deny it. Although, considering the reported secrecy of the phone cop organization, (laughs) maybe they're just really good at keeping a secret. The idea of the phone cops came from Howard Hessman. He said in America's favorite radio station, the whole joke about phone cops came out of the counterculture of the 60s. Hessman said it was a running gag among his friends from the committee. He's also pretty sure it didn't stop with them. Stories about the phone cops were a pervasive part of hippie lore. At the time, the phone company had incredible power. They owned all of the equipment and they controlled all of the calls. If they wanted to know anything about you, 
the story goes, it wouldn't be too hard for the phone cops to figure it out. If you were messing with or somehow damaged Ma Bell's equipment, like maybe smashing a phone, the phone cops would show up to make you pay. The lore of the phone cops is spotty at best. Most stories of phone cop horrors were whispered in hushed tones around campfires during the Johnson administration. The story of the phone cops did show up around the campfire in an episode of the teen TV show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? in 1990. The phone cops in their story would get you for something as minor as letting the phone ring too long. And if you were arrested by their phone cops, you were locked away forever in a little room with nothing but a bed, a toilet, and a phone. (laughs) The big twist from Are You Afraid of the Dark? The phone does not make outgoing calls. It only takes incoming. So the next time someone tells you they love that phone cops episode of WKRP, you can say, oh, you mean the one with the bomb at the transmitter? Get ready for an argument. Just like Johnny drinking himself sober, a lot of people think phone cops is its own episode. But enough about the phone cops. We'll get to them in just a few minutes. Right now, let's get into the episode. We start out in the studio where Bailey is on the phone trying to find out why they can't get through to Johnny and Venus. Travis is anxiously waiting. Okay, thank you. Well... It's out, it's out of order. We gotta think of something, Annie. We got we gotta do something. We come on, think right, of something. Right, take it easy, Bailey. Grace under pressure, remember? Oh, don't give me that crap. <laughs> Andy tells Bailey he didn't want to have to do this, but this is an emergency. I'm gonna cut right in on him. Bailey tells Andy he can't do that. Bailey, I know it's darned unprofessional, but this is serious. Bailey keeps trying to tell him he can't do that, but Andy holds up his hand for her to be quiet as he takes the microphone. We interrupt this broadcast for a very special emergency announcement. This is Andy Travis calling Johnny Fever and Ven- I'm not on the air. That's that's what I'm trying to tell you. The studio transmit leak is only one way. Andy looks at Bailey confused. What? Bailey slows down and she repeats what she said. I said that the studio transmitter link is only one way. Until they throw the switch, the studio is dead. Well, that's dumb. Who set that up? You did. It was cheaper that way. We've got a missed song here. Had you been watching back in October of 1981, you'd have been hearing music in the control room, which makes sense. When Andy started his announcer segment, it felt like something should have been on the air, and it was. Celebration from Cool and the Gang was playing. Check it out. We've got the original clip from the Big D, Dale Kovar's set of recreated discs. You can't do that. Look, Bailey, I know it's darned unprofessional, but this is serious. But Andy... We interrupt this broadcast for a very special emergency announcement. Shout Factory couldn't clear cool on the gang, so instead of a replacement, they went with another muting. Celebration remains the only number one hit ever for Cool and the Gang, and it was a big one. It stayed at number two for two weeks in February of 81, and since then, it's really never gone away. Celebration is still played extensively at sports arenas and wedding receptions. In 2021, the song was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry. Interesting note about Celebration, it has nine listed writers. I think this would be the gang. Andy sits down and rubs his forehead. Bailey begins to panic. Well, come on, think of something. Do something. Take it easy, Bailey. We're going to be okay. Bailey has grabbed Andy's arm and she's shaking him. A couple of quick fact checks on the tech. Uh Uh-oh, geek time. Geek out time. At about this time, most studios were connected to the remote transmitter via a dedicated high-quality phone line. 
In the case of FM, you had two phone lines, one for each stereo channel. Some larger market stations were making the move to microwave links from studio to transmitter. The microwaves sounded great, but they were expensive, so most stations were still on phone lines in the early 80s. The lines are naturally two-way, but they're only set up to send a signal from the studios to the transmitter. That's typical because broadcasting from the transmitter site is really unusual. Well, they did mention in the last episode how the transmitter building used to also be the studios for WKRP. So that's a good explanation for how they would be able to broadcast from the transmitter. Most remote transmitter sites are nothing more than a shack, just a little larger than the transmitter. No mic, no turntables. The remote sites usually aren't set up for any kind of broadcasting. The remote sites are also incredibly loud because of all the fans to keep the uh, cool transmitters the, cool. Yeah, It's really noisy inside a transmitter building. So Travis tells Bailey to take it easy. Everything's going to be okay. We still have 20 minutes to get out there. Oh, oh, well, that's great. What time did you call them? Which is when Andy realizes he never called the police. He rolls <laughs> his chair over to the phone by the studio door and begins to frantically dial the cops. Meanwhile, at the transmitter building, Venus is on the mic introducing Slow Hand by the Pointer Sisters. He starts the record playing, but the turntable slows down. We hear the intro to the song play in slow motion. Venus reaches out and whips the turntable in a clockwise motion. We hear the song begin to play at normal speed. Big heart, mellow friends. This is Venus, your man with a slow hand and turntable to match, bringing you free-flowing music, unencumbered by the heated rush of those annoying little commercials. And now the pointers. Suddenly, there's a horrible scream from outside the door. Venus leaps out of his chair and rushes to the door. Johnny opens it and walks in. You know, Les is right. That primal scream stuff really helps get it out. Venus sits back down, shaking his head. We think we caught an interesting tech glitch while transferring the audio to the editor. It points up the whole theater aspect of doing TV in front of a live audience. Picturing what's going on backstage at the top of this scene will help you be able to hear what happened. Howard Hessman is standing on the other side of that door. He's got a sound cue coming up. He has to scream at a certain cue point after Venus's talk bit. To catch his scream on the other side of the door, there has to be a mic out there. So Howard is standing there at the mic waiting for his cue. He doesn't realize they turned the mic on early in anticipation of the noise he's about to make. If you listen, you can hear another voice behind Venus. We think it's Howard talking quietly to a set person before doing his scream. Check it out. I'll play it a couple of times. Man and turntable to match, bringing you free-flowing music. Unencumbered by Let's the turn it up and isolate it a little bit more. Table to match, bringing you free-flowing music. Unen- kind of cool, just interesting insight into how much of a play they were doing in front of cameras. Venus went into Slow Hand by the Pointer Sisters. No, this is not a song about Eric Clapton. His album of the same name had come out in 77. This was a single from the Pointer Sisters' eighth studio album called Black and White, released in May of 1981. It was the first single from the album, and it would hit big. Sister Anita Pointer took the lead vocal. I want a man with a slow hand. 
number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and would stay there for three weeks. It probably would have gone to number one, but it got stuck behind the juggernaut Endless Love from Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. A lot of songs in early 1981 did not get their time as a number one because of Endless Love. Ugh. Nine weeks it held the number so one spot. I got so tired of hearing that song. I think a lot of people did this. <laughs> <laughs> when it dropped, it dropped fast. My endless love. Johnny was invoking a bit of primal scream therapy to deal with his bad luck. We first got a reference to this fully discredited psychiatric quackery when Les told us all about it in the episode Most Improved Station. That was the last episode of Season 2. For all the info on primal scream therapy, and it's pretty good, make sure to check out <laughs> that edition of the podcast. Johnny is checking his watch. Boy, when is Andy going to call? Wobbling his head back and forth in exasperation, Venus picks up the dial from the face of the phone. <laughs> this is all that's left after Johnny smashed it. He hands it to Johnny. Here, John, call him. <laughs> Johnny looks at the piece of phone. I'm sorry, man. Don't apologize to me. Tell Mama Bell you're sorry. Johnny looks up with a panicked expression. You're right. What are we going to do? What do you mean, we, pale face? You broke it, you fix it. Johnny points at the pieces of the broken phone. Look, it's remnants of psychedelic spaghetti. What do you want me to do? You better try and fix it, man. I don't know nothing about fixing no phones. And I love psychedelic spaghetti. <laughs> so Venus picks up the toolbox and tosses it at Johnny. Look, butterfly brain. You're good with a toolbox. Use your imagination. Johnny, still holding the dial, catches the toolbox. Okay. Johnny tosses the dial on the floor, but then he realizes... Now I'll need that. So he bends down to pick up the dial from the floor. <laughs> now we hear Venus refer to Mama Bell. Ma Bell or Mama Bell is a nickname for the Bell Telephone and Telegraph Company, later American Telephone and Telegraph, or AT&T. The company was named after the phone's inventor, Alexander Graham Bell. You'd think Bell would have become fabulously rich from his invention. Not so much. Bell was not a businessman. He did not have a desire to be rich. Bell became a low-end shareholder in the new company bearing his name. He used his earnings to fund other humanitarian and scientific pursuits. Bell's namesake would go on to become the largest private enterprise business in the history of the world. It would exist for most of its life as a legally organized and regulated monopoly. By 1974, changes in telecommunications had spurred even more growth. The United States was forced to file an antitrust suit against the ever-growing monopoly of AT&T in 1974. Eight years of negotiation and maneuvering would eventually lead to the breakup of the Bell System. At the time of its breakup in 1984, listen to this. Ma Bell employed more than one million people and had assets of more than $150 billion. The Fixin' No Phones line is a parody of the Gone with the Wind line about birthing babies. We did a full background on Butterfly McQueen and her famous phrase in our podcast about the WKRP episode, The Baby, from Season 3, Episode 4. Oh, 
Uh, what is it? Logic, we've got to have a doctor. I don't know nothing about birthing babies. Make sure to check that podcast episode for details. It never really dawned on me what Venus was saying to Johnny until we were doing the research for this podcast. He's saying butterfly brain. Look, butterfly brain. Which I'm now getting to be a reference to Butterfly McQueen, who originally said the line. That is a deep pull, and I'm wondering how many people were getting that even in 1981. It's testament to Hugh Wilson doing a smart show, and he didn't really care if the audience kept up or not. Look, Butterfly Brain. We have to catch up with our B story, so we transition to a hotel room where there's a knock on the door. Joyce opens the door to see Art standing in the hallway. Joyce invites him into her room. I'm glad you had a change of heart. Yeah, I rushed off a little earlier today. It was kind of rude. Joyce tells him he wasn't rude and invites him to have a seat. She asks if he'd like a drink. Mr. Carlson tells her, nah, he's fine, but Joyce holds up a pitcher full of purple liquid. Have your favorite. Vodka and grape juice. Uh oh. <laughs> Mr. Carlson looks at the pitcher. Purple cows. Mm hmm. Well, short one. Two fingers. <laughs> Joyce pours some of the purple liquid into a glass and holds up two fingers to measure. She thanks Mr. Carlson for the second chance. He tells her they go back a long time. I didn't want to see your feelings hurt. Joyce walks over to give him his drink and takes a seat in the chair next to him. You're a sweet man. Ah, no, I'm not. Heck, you should see me when I wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Realizing how that must have sounded, Mm -hmm. Art begins (laughs) stammering and stumbling over his words as he stands and walks across the room. What I I meant to say... Oh, I know what you meant. You do? Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you always... Always did know what I I meant, even when I occasionally didn't. Joyce smiles at Art. She then asks if he'll excuse her for a second. I'm just going to change into something more comfortable. Carlson begins to say something. Joyce tells him to make himself comfortable and have another purple cow. She disappears into the bathroom. Hmm, what's going on here? (laughs) Mr. Carlson rolls his eyes, saying... Oh, boy. He drains his glass of purple cow. (laughs) He starts to take off his suit jacket, and then he has second thoughts. He puts his jacket back on. Art asked for two fingers of purple cow. (laughs) Measuring alcohol with your fingers is a trick devised in the Old West of the United States. It dates back to about 1830. There was no telling about the glassware you might find in frontier bars. You could be drinking your whiskey out of a lowball glass, a highball glass, maybe even a water glass. It all depended on what wasn't broken during the last bar fight or if the stage made it this week with new unbroken glasses. Regardless of what you were drinking out of, you could control the depth of the booze by specifying a number of fingers. A finger is enough alcohol to fill the glass to the width of the bartender's finger when it's wrapped around the bottom of the glass. Two fingers was normally considered a serving or roughly a shot. So you'd usually pick the saloon that had the fattest bartender, you want a bartender wouldn't you, with, with fat fingers. Big, beefy hands, yeah. <laughs> These days, as shots have become a standardized amount, finger measurements aren't used so much. There's a move on to standardize the volume of a finger measurement. Presently, a shot is 1.5 ounces of alcohol. Ordering a drink neat means you get two ounces of alcohol and a double is three ounces of alcohol. 
The standard being proposed for a finger measure is enough alcohol to cover the bottom of a standard lowball glass to three quarters of an inch, or roughly the width of a finger. The three quarter inch mark is important because it represents one ounce of booze. Two fingers would then be the same as a two ounce neat glass of alcohol. Three fingers would be a three-ounce double. And four fingers is a really bad day. (laughs) We found a number of drink recipes out there featuring vodka and grape juice, but none of them was called a purple cow. And the cow part of that comes from the fact that it's ice cream is what makes it the cow. The purple cow is traditionally an ice cream float. It's made with either grape juice or grape soda. Now, we did find a drink called the grape ape. (laughs) It's made with two ounces of vodka, three ounces of grape juice, and three ounces of lemon-lime soda. Now, the sophisticated take on the purple cow or the grape ape seems to be something called the transfusion. The transfusion has been a popular drink at golf courses and country clubs in the United States for decades. President Dwight Eisenhower, an avid golfer, is said to have been a fan of the transfusion. A transfusion is vodka, grape juice, and ginger ale blended in the same proportion as the grape ape. Be careful. The transfusion, they say, is sweet, bubbly, and they go down very easily. Hmm. So, yeah, you want to watch it if you're having some transfusions at the course. Purple cows. Mm-hmm. Back at the station, Travis and Jennifer are in the lobby. Jennifer is on the phone. Andy is leaning over a map of the city with a pencil. Covering the mouthpiece of the phone, she relays info to Andy. Car's on its way. Red lights and sirens. Oh, great. A worried Andy nods his head. Thanks, Commissioner. If there's ever anything I can do for you, just... What? (laughs) My Commissioner, really. (laughs) Jennifer hangs up the phone. Herb comes into the lobby, and Herb has been kind of disconnected from everything that's going on. He's not really completely aware of everything since they've gotten back in the station, I really think. Yeah, he's he's clueless. Yeah, so he walks up beside Andy. Okay, Trevesky, listen up, babe. I've said it once, I'm going to say it again. No commercial, no money, no station, no... One more word out of you, and I'm going to punch your lights out. Herb starts to say something. Not one more word. Not his smart move, Herb. Shut up. Andy (laughs) returns to the map. The phone rings and Jennifer answers it. She asks the person at the other end if they could hold for a moment. The man you want to speak with is standing right here. Well, Herb holds out his hand. He's assuming the call is for him. Jennifer pushes the hold button. Andy? He says he's from Black Monday. Andy thinks for a minute and then tells Jennifer to call the police from another line. Andy says he will keep the Black Monday caller on the line as long as he can. Jennifer hands Andy the receiver and quickly leaves the lobby. Andy takes a deep breath before having a seat. He tries to sound as calm as he can. Hello, this is Andy Travis. Well, sir, uh, first things first here. Why don't you uh, start by telling me, is this a real bomb we're talking about here or is this just a joke? It's real. Andy tells the caller he has two people out at the transmitter he can't reach. Well, I guess it doesn't really make any difference that you didn't mean to hurt anybody now, does it? Andy listens for a bit, then tells the caller to just slow down. Now, do you want to tell me where you put the bomb? Uh-huh. Well, do you want to tell me why you did that? Andy covers the mouthpiece and turns to Herb. He tells him to go tell Jennifer the bomb is in a toolbox. Herb runs out of the lobby as Andy keeps talking calmly to the caller. We transition to the transmitter building where Johnny is banging on the (laughs) lock of the toolbox 
with what looks like to be another part of the broken phone. John! That's not the way to open up a toolbox. I'm going to need a stick of dynamite to get this thing open. (laughs) Venus stands, saying he has to go to the bathroom. He tells Johnny to watch the record and to not hurt himself. Johnny nods his head. Venus goes out the door. Johnny looks at the toolbox, and then he slaps it, frustrated. Well, he kind of likes that sound, so he begins playing it like a drum, which becomes... Daylight, come and me won't throw up. Johnny is changing the lyrics a little bit, but he's singing the Banana Boat Song, a traditional Jamaican folk song. It had first been recorded by a singer from Trinidad in 1952. In 1955, American songwriters Lord Burgess and William Attaway wrote an English version of the lyrics for Harry Belafonte. The Belafonte version, titled Banana Boat, and then in parentheses, Deo, has become the de facto standard. on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1957 and quickly became Belafonte's signature song. Back in Joyce's hotel room, Mr. Carlson has just downed another purple cow. (laughs) When he puts the glass down, we can see a little purple mustache on his upper lip that was left by the drink. The door to the bathroom opens and Joyce comes into the room. She's wearing jeans and a sweater. Joyce looks at Mr. Carlson and laughing, she walks over to him takes his handkerchief out of his jacket pocket to wipe off his upper lip. You should wear a mustache. Huh? (laughs) It suits you. Mr. Carlson takes the handkerchief from her, and he's looking at her. She asks him if something's wrong. He backs up, still looking at her. Oh, no. It's just the way you're dressed. (laughs) Joyce puts her hands in her sweater pocket. Oh, gee. I'm sorry. I was... Just being myself. Joyce tells Art, uh, just relax. She's never seen him so tense. Tense? Me? Oh, heck no. I ought to go now. (laughs) Art heads to the door of the hotel room. Joyce tells him he just got there. Art turns to Joyce. Listen, miles between me and sleep. Joyce puts her arm around Mr. Carlson's shoulder and leads him over to the couch. Arthur, do you remember when I used to remind you when you weren't making sense? Uh, yeah. Well... This is one of those times. Mr. Carlson is sweating like crazy as he clumsily tries to explain. It's about that proposition of yours. Uh Well, I I just came over here to tell you that... Well, I don't think I can do that. Don't I even get to make my pitch? And then, you know, while I was standing there for a few minutes alone, I thought... Boy, maybe I could. Joyce tells him that's great, but she wants to talk to him about it. Hart looks at her. And now I don't know whether I can again. (laughs) As you can see, I'm just as good as ever at making decisions. Joyce has her arm up on Art's shoulder as she tells him she wants him to know what this relationship can mean to him. 
She is pretty handsy, isn't she? She is. She she's touchy feely. A lot of hand on the shoulder and the back, and the it's just, and she sits way too close. So very uncomfortable. So Joyce stands up. I've got some visual aids in the other room. Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's going way too far. Art jumps up and grabs her hand. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> Joyce tells him, "Okay," then asks him to just close his eyes and imagine Art. Closes his eyes. Putting her arm around his neck, she gently guides him back down onto the couch as she speaks. It could be like having a branch sales office in another city. Mr. Carlson's eyes open wide. How could it be like that? (laughs) Well, you can see Mr. Carlson trying to make sense of all this. And you wouldn't have to rely on the little guy for all the new business. Mr. Carlson thinks about this for a bit. Joyce. Yes. What are we talking about? We're talking about Norbert Haskins, the rep firm I work for. Rep firm? Uh, Joyce tells him, yes, they want to represent WKRP. You can see Hart's face and body relaxing with relief. What would you think? <laughs> oh, 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 I, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Heck, you can't, you can't fool an old salesman with salesman talk. <laughs> shakes his head, looks down, then admits to Joyce he could never lie to her, so Art begins to explain. He invited me up to your hotel room, and then you said you wanted to slip into something more comfortable. Joyce looks down at her clothes, and she says, well, they are more comfortable, but then it dawns on Joyce what Art was thinking. Joyce apologizes. I wouldn't mislead you for anything. Now, I say bull on that. I think she did mean to mislead You think? Him. Well, she's she, she's very handsy, very touchy, but all there that, are people like that. But that close at the restaurant and all, yeah. I think she meant to mislead him. I think she kind of has a little crush maybe st- on yeah. him, and maybe, she, maybe that's why she left WKRP. Maybe she was getting a little too close. Mr. Carlson tells her that it's his own fault. You know how I am. I, I never get anything right. <laughs> Joyce walks up to Mr. Carlson and tells him she's touched that he would even think of her that way. I think you're a terrific guy. Uh, I am? Mm -hmm. If you weren't married, I'd camp on your doorstep. Listen, if I weren't married, you wouldn't have to camp very long. (laughs) (laughs) But I am. And I'd better go. Okay. Joyce tells Art goodbye as she straightens his tie. She tells him to take care. You too. They hug. As they pull apart, Joyce puts her arms around Art's neck. She does kind of a Mae West impersonation. You know, uh, I could change into something even more comfortable. Art raises his eyebrows and looks as if he were actually considering this. Joyce takes her arms down quickly and turns away from Art. I I was just kidding. I was just kidding. So is I. Okay. <laughs> I better go. Arthur. Hart hurries to the door. Before he gets to the door, Joyce stops him. There, there is something very, very different about you. Yeah. The old spice. <laughs> Hart opens the door and hurries out. Well, you know, the way she's straightening his tie, taking the handkerchief out of his jacket pocket... That's that's a very personal wiping his lip wiping his lip off for him. Yeah, it's all very touchy feely. Jennifer straightens his tie and sometimes puts his collar correct or whatever, but it's a different way. It's I don't more know. She's clinical, not clinical, more business. Yeah, 
she's this way. She was like putting the moves on him. It seemed yeah, to me. Yeah, it really did have that that feeling mm-hmm. that she was getting in there close and being very, very intimate with him. Joyce said she worked for a radio rep firm. She described it pretty accurately. Having a rep firm is like adding sales staff. The rep firm is selling the station to regional or national advertisers. Usually, the rep firm gets paid by taking a commission on each sale. Rep firms make their money through volume. Although they don't make a lot on each individual sale, they can represent multiple stations in each market and make money selling them all. These days, Katz Media is the largest rep firm in the U.S. They rep more than 3,400 radio stations. Out at the transmitter building, Johnny and Venus are playing cards. Got any sevens? Go fish. We catch the end to We're On to Something by Lauren Wood. The song ends and Venus introduces She's a Bad Mamma Jamma. She's built, she's stacked by Carl Carlton before returning to the card game. It's after 3.30. Uh, that's when the bomb is supposed to go off. Johnny tells Venus it's obvious the bomb was jive. So why don't they just leave and head back to the station? Oh, why don't we stay here to 4 o'clock and just turn it over when uh, let's start with the news? Yeah, Johnny agrees. You've probably never heard of Lauren Wood, but she was trying so hard to get you to hear about her. She started singing in the mid-1960s, fronting a band called Rebecca and the Sunnybrook Farmers. <laughs> Lauren also goes by Chunky, which is why in 1973 she formed the Chunky, Novi, and Ernie band with her cousin and a friend who played bass. They had two albums in the 70s, both co-produced by Ted Templeman. Lauren went solo in 1979. Her first album featured a duet with Michael McDonald and included several named guest musicians like Ronnie Montrose and Steve Lukather. Even with the top flight session guys, there were no hits and no chart action. Hey, this is Al calling from the future. We totally missed something here. Lauren did have a top 40 hit with that Michael McDonald duet. Please Don't Leave peaked at number 29 in September of 1979. Other than that one, Lauren hasn't had any hits. A big thanks to listener Chris Fodor for helping us out on this one. Now, go back to the past. Lauren has written hits. It's just she writes them for other people, like Cher, Dusty Springfield, Gladys Knight, Nicolette Larson, and Sammy Hagar, just to name a few. This cut comes from her second solo album, the 1981 titled Cat Trick. There were no hits and no chart action for this one either. There isn't even a Wikipedia entry about the album, but leave it to YouTube. We did find a clip of this song. into She's a Bad Mamma Jamma, She's Built, She's Stacked by Carl Carlton. Carlton was born in Detroit in 1952. By 1961, at the age of nine, he was singing professionally. In 1964, at the age of 12, he did his first recording under the name Little Carl Carlton. 
Carlton had a bigger hit than this one in 1974 with a song called Everlasting Love. But this is what he will always be remembered for. She's a Bad Mama Jamma was a single that eventually appeared on Carlton's self-titled 1981 album. Carlton earned a 1982 Grammy nomination, Best R&B Vocal Performance, Male. Look at her. She's a bad mamma jamma became a major R&B hit and also peaked at number 22 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Since its release, Mamma Jamma has become a staple of compilation albums and movie soundtracks. Get ready, gang. It's time for The Phone Cops. Oh, no. The sound of sirens catches Johnny's attention. Sounds like a lot of them. Venus guesses there must be a fire or something. It sounds like they're headed this way. Johnny stands and listens for a bit. I know what it is. What? It's the phone company. They know what I did here today. Venus asks him what he's talking about. They're coming to get me, man. Johnny's nervously pacing. Venus tells him he's being paranoid. Which brings us to... The line of the episode. Wake up, sucker! This is the phone company we're talking about. I mean, they see everything. They know everything. They got their own covert police force. Johnny is panicking. Probably wired for sound right now. I gotta get out of here. Johnny heads for the door. Johnny! Don't use my name! Johnny opens the door and... He's out of there. Wake up, sucker. This is the phone company we're talking about. We transition to the lobby where Andy is just hanging up from talking to a police sergeant. Jennifer comes into the lobby and asks, what happened? Andy tells her the guy just kept babbling until the police got to him and nailed him. Jennifer says the police have her patched in to one of the squad cars. She picks up the phone and punches line two. We hear she's a bad mamma jamma playing over the monitor in the lobby. As long as we're still on the air, means they're okay. Jennifer checks her watch. Andy, did you look at the time? 3.33, right? That's it. No bomb. I knew it. Andy and Jennifer are both smiling about this. Jennifer speaks into the phone to the police. Officer, it's three minutes past the time that the bomb was supposed to go off. Suddenly, there's static on the speaker. Do you see anything? Andy tries to be reassuring. He tells Jennifer it's an old transmitter. It breaks down all the time. Jennifer listens on the phone. She then puts her head down, covering her eyes. Andy takes the phone. Officer... Are you sure? Do you see anybody hanging around out there? Andy hangs up the phone. He slowly walks over to the speaker, turns off the static. Andy and Jennifer are both in shock. I don't believe it. Doesn't make any sense. We hear someone coming into the lobby from the main entrance. They're snapping their fingers and singing. It's Carlson. Jennifer says his name and he stops. He can see immediately that something is wrong. What is it? It's okay, Jennifer. I'll tell him. Andy pats Art on the back as they walk towards his office. Tell me what? Come on, Mr. Carlson. We need to talk. Jennifer nervously begins straightening up her desk. She takes her cup and her saucer over to the coffee machine, and she sees Johnny's mug sitting next to the pot. 
She hangs her head down, and the screen fades. This is a heavy scene. Mm-hmm. They think that those guys are dead. We have no idea what happened out at the transmitter. Yeah. The way they're leaving it, Johnny and Venus have been blown up, and the cops got there just in time to witness it. So we fade to the lobby, and there seems to have been a little bit of a time jump because now we've got Bailey at Jennifer's desk, and she is on the phone. No, no, we are off the air. Now, how can we announce we are off the air when we are off the air? Cut to a wide shot. We see Art's office door open. Carlson, Andy, and Jennifer come walking out. I don't care, Travis. I should have been here instead of over. It's my fault. I shouldn't have sent him out there in the first place. Jennifer's telling them they shouldn't be blaming themselves. Right then, Johnny comes blasting through the main doors. You didn't see me. You didn't see me. (laughs) In a panic runs through the door leading to the bullpen. Andy, Mr. Carlson, Jennifer, and Bailey are all in shock, and they take off and run (laughs) after him. There's a quick transition to the bullpen, and we see Johnny push through the doors. He's frantically looking for a place to hide. He climbs over the couch to hide behind it. (laughs) Andy, Mr. Carlson, Bailey, and Jennifer all come into the bullpen. Andy goes over to Johnny and pulls on his arm. Travis, I'll play anything. I'll play the Carpenters. I'll play Barry Manilow. Just play. <laughs> Jennifer asks Johnny where Venus is. Johnny tells them he's parking the car. They all let out a big sigh of relief. Andy gets down to Johnny's level behind the couch and he asks him what happened out there. Oh, it's terrible. First there were the sirens and then the explosion. <laughs> we. Cut to the lobby, and Venus is walking in. He is walking very slowly, in shock. He's stiff. His eyes are wide. The bomb was at the transmitter. Venus looks around. He sees the lobby is empty, so he continues walking slowly and carefully through the door to the bullpen. I was almost killed. I like the way he's taking these little baby steps. He's just like, uh, 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 I was almost holding his uh, holding his shoulders up, and he's just so his arms aren't really moving as he walks. And back in the bullpen, Johnny's telling his story to the others. By then, I was about a quarter of a mile away, but I could see the place was crawling with phone cops. Andy turns to look at the others, confused. Venus enters the bullpen. The bomb was at the transmitter. Andy says they've been trying to tell them all afternoon. Johnny is still agitated. Don't you people get it? It was the phone cops. Mr. Carlson points at Johnny and asks what he's talking about. He beat the daylights out of the phone. He thinks they were after him. Naturally, when we heard the sirens, we split. He split. I stayed on the job. Then I realized he was driving off in my car. Had to chase across half a cornfield. Mr. Carlson tells them, well, at least they got out of there before the bomb exploded. Yeah, I tried to tell you, man, these phone cops play hardball. (laughs) The thing that makes the phone cops so funny is how committed to it Johnny is. That's what makes the phone cops funny. So Andy tells Johnny there's no such thing as phone cops. Oh, sure. Cover for (laughs) And he points at his mouth. He's wanting John to really listen. He tells Johnny, the real cops caught the maniac that did this. The real cops are in on it. I don't think there's any getting to him. (laughs) No, he's not going to be talked out of this. So Jennifer tells them the bomb was hidden in a toolbox. Toolbox? The toolbox? Johnny looks like he's about to faint. Les enters the bullpen from the studio hallway door. And now a special look at this episode's bandage play. No new bandage alert. Since this is a continuation of the same day, Les has his bandages in the same spot 
as last week's alert. Johnny, Venus, you're alive. The newsman's eye, you just can't fool him. That's wonderful. Gee, thanks, Les. Of course, I'll have to update my story. Story. How'd you like it, Andy? (laughs) Andy asks him what he's talking about. My four o'clock news report, didn't you listen? Les, the transmitter blew up. Of course, that was my lead. They all stare at Les. Les isn't getting it. You led off your newscast by telling them that we were off the air? No. (laughs) I can include that in my update. Les turns and goes out the door. We have one quick poster watch in this episode. Yay! If you look in the hallway outside the bullpen, we've already talked about the Juice Newton poster to the right of the door. We haven't talked about the poster to the left of the door, mainly because we couldn't see it clearly until just recently. This is a poster for the first self-titled album from a performer named Eve Moon. There's not a lot of information out there about Eve. Okay, her real last name was Chusid, C-H-U-S-I-D. We're not sure how to pronounce that. So we understand going with Moon. (laughs) Yeah. She was a hard rock singer, songwriter, guitarist from New York. This was her only album release on Capitol in 1981. There were no hits. We did find about 1,100 copies of this album for sale on Discogs. So if you want your very own, Eve must have given up on the solo dream because in 1989, Eve showed up playing guitar in a band called The Peregrines. The Peregrines were active for one year and released one album. No word on Eve after 1989. I'm guessing real estate. (laughs) just gave up the music biz. She still plays on the weekends for fun, but she's in real estate now. The bomb was at the transmitter. For our capper scene, we're in Art's office. Carlson is on the phone talking to Carmen. He tells her he's not going to the club tonight. He's coming straight home. He says he'll see her soon, and he hangs up the phone. The door to his office opens. Andy is standing in the doorway. Well, Bucky said it'd take about a month to fix a transmitter. Art stands up and says, good, he can start his vacation early. Andy comes on in to Mr. Carlson's office. He wasn't finished. He tells Mr. Carlson, Clark Callahan over at WPIG, he said they could use their auxiliary transmitter. I tell you, Travis, now that's what I like about being part of the Cincinnati broadcasting community. Competitive? Oh, heck, yeah. But when there's an emergency, we all pull together, by golly. We help one another. Yeah, he said it'd cost about $800. A month? A week? The swine? Smiling, Andy <laughs> tells Mr. Carlson good night, and he leaves his office. Art walks out into the lobby just as Jennifer is coming from the bullpen door. Carlson asks Jennifer if she could do something for him. She tells him, of course. Would you call your florist and have him send a dozen long-stemmed roses to my wife, please? I already did that. Jennifer's smiling at Art. You really are the best, you know? Thanks. Herb comes walking into the lobby, his coat draped over his arm. Mr. Carlson sees him. Good night, little guy. Good night, big... (laughs) Herb turns to look at Jennifer. (laughs) 
He gives her a little sneer before he leaves. Jennifer begins straightening her desk and we see Johnny appear in the doorway. He sees Jennifer is alone with her back to him. He backs up to make a second entrance. Sneaking up behind Jennifer was Johnny's regular move in season one. He comes into the lobby quietly with his arms held high over his head, ready to scare Jennifer. He begins tiptoeing quickly up behind her just as the phone rings. The sound of the phone makes him jump and he quickly turns and runs out the main doors as Jennifer answers the phone. It might be the phone cops. (laughs) So that's it for an explosive affair. We're so glad no one was hurt. But Bucky's got a lot of work ahead of him. (laughs) Yes, he does. Donna, what is next week's episode? Next week's episode is The Union. WKRP, the radio station, sees another jump in the ratings when it's rumored that the staff plans to unionize. Carlson's mother threatens to sell the station. Yeah, not WKRP, the TV show, because its ratings are sliding horribly. (laughs) So that's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. We've got all the details in there about the Shout Factory DVDs. You can also find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. And for more WKRP fun, we'd love for you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shot Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shot Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!